0: Father, in the name of Jesus, we gather in this place, worshiping you, listening for your voice. Would you give us what we don't have? Would you teach us what we don't know? Would you make us what we've not become so that we will shine with your light and love? Oh God, so many things in this world distract us our physical health, our financial well-being, our jobs, our family. And yet today, we've come to hear from you. And over these next few weeks, we desire to hear from you about how you would have us to be a part of this process. So here we are listening. Speak, Lord. Speak. And in these next few minutes, where we talk about your call to the nations, the very thing we've sung about already this morning, Lord, I pray that the words I say and my thoughts would be pleasing to you, my strength, my redeemer. And Father, you who draw all men and women, boys and girls, to yourself, you're the one who calls us. Lord, would you call someone to you today? Lord, there's someone that's come in unsure about their salvation. Would you clarify that today? And Lord, would you allow all of us to walk out of here with a greater commitment? To what you have put us here for. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. remember the first time that I was able to visit Disney now that's the time I can remember I have a little bit of childhood bitterness about theme parks Because every time we would go to a city, and because I was raised in a pastor's home, we would often go to different cities for our our denominational convention. Every time we would go to a different city, and they would have a theme park, and my brother or I would ask to go, our father would always say, it's just like all the other theme parks, son. The problem is, we never went to any of the other theme parks. (laughs) So the first time I remember being able to go to Disney, I, I was in high school, and it was a high school trip. And there was something that everybody had been told we have to do. It was highly hyped. It was the attraction that you know as, it's a small world. And so we did it. We stood at a long Disney line, and we got into that little car. And then we found ourselves in that ride with all these strange-looking little people from around the world singing... It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a... You've been there too, right? Kind of disappointing, right? (laughs) Didn't quite live up to the hype. It was a, a very simple ride. Now, growing up in South Carolina, I kind of grew up with a simple life. Most of the people I saw kind of looked like me and had a lot in common with me. And and I would have never imagined growing up in that particular setting that um, God would allow me to realize how truly small our world is. But man, now I live in a city where the world has come to us. And I see it's a small world after all. And I go, I go to a church where the world has come to us. More than 60 nations make up this congregation. And, and I see it's a small world after all. We have people that worship here from Nigeria and Sierra Leone, from Niger and Togo, from Congo and Cameroon, from Ghana and Liberia, let me hear you if you're here, from Burkina Faso and Ivory Coast, from Uganda and Zimbabwe, from Ethiopia and Eritrea, from Costa Rica and St. Thomas and Trinidad and Anguilla and Guana and Dominica and Colombia and Puerto Rico and Honduras and Jamaica and Haiti and Cuba and Suriname. And Belize and Barbados and Panama and Uruguay and Mexico and St. Lucia and Bahamas and Venezuela and Belize and Ecuador and El Salvador and Brazil and Argentina and Indiana and China and Myanmar and South Korea and Taiwan and Japan and Philippines and France and Denmark and Syria and Egypt and Lebanon and Peru and Grenada and Antigua and St. Vincent and Bosnia and Canada and Malaysia and Kenya and the one we always forget, the United States. Aren't you grateful that God has? brought the nations to us, it's a small world after all. (laughs) Tanzania, the world, the small, small world has come to us. And in his last words, Jesus gathered with his disciples after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And his message was, to that small group, I want you to go into the small, small world. The passage is one of the most familiar in Scripture. If you have your Bible, you turn there, in your printed copy or in your device, Matthew 28. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. Often, you have heard this passage taught beginning in verse 18, but I want you to see why the preceding verses are relevant In Matthew's gospel, it's clear this was part of the package. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Say all nations. nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fyodor Dostoevsky said the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to have something to live for. And Jesus, in these red letter words, was telling his disciples what they were to live for. And because we have the Holy Scriptures, Jesus is saying to every Christ follower, this is what you live for. In a sense, he's saying, you are here for the nations. I want to make something clear that I don't think was very clear while I was growing up. I had a great church. My dad, my hero, was the pastor. Every year, we'd have missionaries come from foreign countries, and and they would give great presentations about how God was working through their ministry. And I knew, even as a child, that some may go But that seemed like maybe that was the gospel green beret. Not everyone was called to the nations. That's just for those what we back then called foreign missionaries. And yet as I have grown in my faith and as I read the Great Commission, this is what I understand. Every Christ follower has some responsibility for the disciple-making process of the nations of the world. It's not just those who are vocational missionaries and get on a plane and go, but it's you and me. Every Christ follower has some responsibility for the disciple-making process of the nations of the world. There's no way I can read the words of Jesus without understanding that. And this passage makes it clear. Beginning in that first verse, verse 16, I think when we look at that verse, we see a calling That we too must confirm. What was the calling? It was to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In verse 16 we see that the disciples, the eleven, had gathered together there where Jesus had told them to be. Now there's a couple of things that I want you to see about this. First of all, I want you to see that Matthew points out there were eleven in this crew. Now, originally, how many disciples were there? We know what happened. Judas betrayed Jesus. By this point, he's taken his own life. He's hung himself. And So Matthew's pointing out that even after the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, you have a small group of true disciples. There's something I, I want you to be reminded of today. You can be in close proximity to the things of God and not prioritize the heart of God. So you can hang out with people of faith like we're doing today. You can occasionally drop in on a church setting. You can be a member on a roll. You can even give in an offering plate or an offering box and not really understand what it means to walk in your faith with the priorities of God. And yet that's what was taking place with these disciples. They were the true disciples of of Christ. They were the ones who were called. And I would suggest to you today that if there's been that point in your life where you understood you were a sinner and you you knew that wasn't okay, and you you knew that Jesus died for your sins and you received his forgiveness, and you understood that Jesus is alive today and you surrendered your life to him, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, then you are a disciple. So what does a disciple look like? In this passage, we see it. A a disciple is one who goes where Jesus directs you to go. For them, it was the Mount of Olives. They went and they were spending these last days with Jesus, actually in that same place that Scripture tells us he will return. And so they went to the place where Jesus told them to be. If you're a disciple, you're going to do the things that Jesus tells you to do. I'm reading through the Bible and the end of this week I've been in the book of James and James is written by the half brother of Jesus, the guy who grew up with Jesus. Right? That means Joseph and Mary were his father and mother. And so he'd watched Jesus all his life. He had kind of pushed away from following after Christ. But after the resurrection, he, he was all in and he became the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And James writes this, don't come to me and say that you can have faith and yet not have any works in your life. Don't pretend that you are a follower of Jesus if the things that are tangible that other people can see don't look like Jesus. Because if you are a disciple of Christ, You're going to do what he directs you to do. That's one way you know. Another way you know is because you worship Jesus. So the disciples went to where Jesus directed them to be. And when they saw him, what did they do? They fell on their face and they worshiped him. If you are a true disciple of Jesus, when you come into a church setting, it doesn't matter if the lights are high or low. It doesn't matter if the music is loud or soft. It doesn't matter if you like the style or you don't like the style. It doesn't matter how you're dressed. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when you come into a worshipful setting in the in the context of a holy God you're drawn to worship him it's your natural response that's what we do and so just a a quick moment if if in your life you're, you're taking a quick inventory and you say hey um I'm not really doing the things that Jesus has directed me to do then you may not be one of the called you may not be a true disciple of Christ. You may not have ever followed Jesus, no matter how many churches you've joined. Or if you've come in today and you, you find it hard to worship God, you feel like, I, I don't know if I can worship, then you may, you may not be one of the called. You, you may not be a disciple of Christ. You, you, you may not be a true follower of Jesus, regardless of how many times you prayed a prayer or walked in an aisle or been dunked in water. Because there are true marks to our faith. Now, it's interesting though, before we go on, this passage says that they went where Jesus directed them to go and they worshiped him. And then it has this crazy phrase. Even though some of them doubted. And I love that phrase because sometimes I'm like Thomas. I'm a doubter. Raise your hand if you ever doubt things in your faith. And, and some people would tell you that, man, you can't ever doubt. If you're doubting, that's the same thing as sin. And I don't see that in Scripture. Disobedience is sin, but doubt is part of this human condition that we walk with. That sometimes we we get in our flesh, we're not full of the Spirit, and we think, all right, am I, is this the real thing? And I'm, I'm so thankful that this passage tells me that the plan of God, the marching orders of Jesus, the way God wants to do it is to use. Use weak and weary people like you and me. Isn't that so encouraging? He uses even those who doubt. So before we move on, I just want you to think about that. Have you responded to the call? Or are you one of the called? So for the meetings that hap- that's happening today in the presence of Jesus... Are you there? Are you on the mountaintop? Are you, are you where he's asked you to be? All right, there's a second thing though. There's also a claim that we must believe. A claim that we must believe. Look at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus makes a, a bold statement. He says, all authority. Say all Why does he say that? Why does he say all authority? This is not part of the command that we're going to get to. This is a claim. But if this claim in verse 18 is not true, then the command in verse 19 should not be followed. But if the claim in verse 18 is true, then the command in verse 19 is a big deal. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I want you to understand that there's no question now. All authority has been given to me. Now, there would have been question before that. We know that because the disciples kept asking the questions. Jesus, when you're going to establish your kingdom? When you're going to do things the way we want you to do it? And then he died. And the Bible has this terrible verse that says, And all the disciples went back to fishing. So those who had followed him kind of walked away. And then he was raised from the dead. And what did that mean? That meant he had all authority. It meant he had authority over not just sin. He didn't just defeat sin when he took your and my punishment on the cross. He had authority over death. Death. Sin lost its sting. Death lost its power. That's why it says in Acts 17:30 the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands people everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom He's appointed. And all of this He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Jesus is saying, I've got all authority. That's what it means in Philippians 2 in verse 9 when it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that authority mean? Well, raise your hand if you watched any college football yesterday. Let me just see who we're talking with here. Wow. What'd y'all do? <laughs> well, if you watch a football game, what you'll notice is there's some men on both teams that have a lot of power. That power is evidenced by their strength. It's evidenced often by their speed, their abilities. So they have the power to move the ball up and down the field or to stop the ball from being moved up and down the field. They have the power to score. But they're not the only ones on the field. Also, on the field, there are some folks that are dressed kind of in zebra shirts. They don't have the same power, they don't have the equipment, they don't have the strength. They don't have the speed. But those guys got a whistle. And when they blow the whistle, it demonstrates not power, but what? Authority. They can stop the game in a second. They can kick you out of the game in a moment. They are the ones that don't just have power. They have authority What they say must happen whether you like it or not. Jesus said, I have all the authority. That means if he has all the authority, no one else has any of the authority. And that includes you and that includes me. So I don't have the authority to say, this is what I want to do with my life. I don't have the authority to say, this is what it means to be a Christian to me. I don't have the authority to say, hey, I'm not gonna participate in that because I don't like it. No, what Jesus is about to command, he has the authority to command and I should obey whether I like it or not. You've got to decide if you believe his claim. If you believe his claim, then you better obey his command. But just know what the Bible taught. If you don't believe it on this day, you're going to believe it on that day. Because one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So I've got to decide, am I one of the called? You've got to decide that. I would would square that away before I walk out of this room. Am I one of the called? Have I responded and became a a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then I've got to decide, do I believe his claim? Is Jesus who he said he is? By the way, if he's not who he says he is, if he's not Lord, that means he's a liar because he said he was Lord. Or he's a lunatic? He's crazy? What do you believe about the cl- claim? Because after you've resolved that, then you're going to see there's a command that you have to obey. There is a command that we must obey. Now this is the red letter part that you're all familiar with. Go, therefore. Literally, as you go. On the go. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all. Say all. All. Teaching them to observe all. Say all. All. Now listen to this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, So Jesus is saying, my disciples actively make disciples of people from all the nations of the world. In other words, the disciples of Jesus are responsible for the nations. You get that? That means you, if you're a Christ follower, you're responsible for the nations you, you you don't have the freedom to go about your life and not be concerned about what's happening in other parts of the world and that's always been god's plan All the way back to this Abrahamic covenant that we find in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, God is talking to Abraham and he says to him, now the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your your folks, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And boy, don't we love that verse because it challenges us. Because that's faith. Right in the early pages of the Old Testament, that's faith. Faith. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to go where I tell you to go even though I haven't told you yet. You ready? So this is one of the places in Scripture that we begin to understand that faith means we act out of revelation, not reason. Did you hear that? We act out of revelation, not reason. So I don't, have to figure out everything before I respond in obedience. No, if if God says do something, I do it. And so anyway, it goes on to say, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So early in Scripture, we see God saying, I care about all the nations. And then the psalmist. The psalmist is just full of great psalms about the nations, like this one, Psalms 96.3. Declare his glory among the nations. Doesn't get more, much more clear than that. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. And then if there's any confusion about our responsibility, in in Matthew 24, Jesus is again on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. This is before his death. And he's talking to them about the end. And they say, well, Jesus, tell us exactly when the end will come. And I'm sure he just smirks and kind of shakes his head and goes, oh, you guys. And and that's the passage where he tells us there'll be earthquakes and natural disasters, and there'll be wars and and rumors of wars, and nation will turn against nation, he says. And then in verse 14 he says and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come so God cares about the nations why why is this such a big deal it's such a big deal because at the end when we're there in heaven and and whatever that means and however that looks and 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 pearly gates and golden streets and and seeing all your loved ones that have gone before you and going and inhabiting the mansion that he's preparing for you. When you're there, part of what's going to be happening is described in Revelation 7 and verse 9. And this is what it says. And then I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from, read it, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the the reason Jesus gives us this final word, these marching orders, is because his forever plan involves the nation's. So we, who are followers of Jesus, should be asking the question, how do we get there from here? You know, you are, at the very least, a church attender. And so some of you even have your Bibles open, <laughs> and, and you're listening and you're wanting to hear from God, and the preacher's told you... You have a responsibility for the nations. What does that look like? Well, first, let's understand who we're talking about. So right now in the world, there are over seven and a half billion people. Just an interesting side fact, the median age in the world is 29. A lot of us are over the hill. Worst news, life expectancy is 69. (laughs) 69. Some of you are living on borrowed time. But that's not really funny because here's the reality. When you look at that population and the numbers we have, 155,473 people die every day without a relationship with Jesus. Those people in countries like China where there's over a billion people and less than 100 million Christians. Or India, again, where there's over a billion people. Even in our United States where there's over 300 million people. Or, or Indonesia, over 200 million. Or Brazil, over 200 million. Now all these nations are comprised of different people groups. Because as some of you know, you know when, I, when I visit... The continent of Africa and and go to the country of Nigeria, I I realize there are different tribes in Nigeria that speak different languages. And in the world, there are 16,591 different people groups. And yet, here's what we know. Over 6,000 of those, 6,741, do not have a strong presence of the gospel. They have less than 2% of their population that are followers of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of need in the nations. So you wonder... Are we making a difference? And the answer is yes. It's days like today that I'm proud to tell you, though you may not realize our church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention and our denomination partners together to have the largest missionary sending force anywhere in the world. There are 3,667 missionaries today that are on the field because of you. Every time you give to this church, you go to support those missionaries on the field. And they're in some of those hard places. They're making a difference for you. 91% of those missionaries are in areas where people are unreached with the gospel. Like a brand new affinity group we've established called the Asian Pacific Rim. We have over 1,000 missionaries that are there trying to reach 2 billion people. With only 97 million of them being followers of Christ. With 44,000 of them Dying daily without Christ. But, but, but what about in our church, even apart from our denomination? You're making a difference in the nations. Like the nation of Zambia, where working with sweet Miss Elizabeth, you were able to build a well and now a village of 2,500 people in, in Zambia that used to have to walk 25 miles to get water doesn't have to do that because of you. You're making a difference in the nations. <laughs> Pastor Zach is from the little country of Niger, and and his brother is a missionary children's minister in Niger, and because of you... We were able to provide a Christmas party for 250 children in Niger that wouldn't have any other gifting or celebration at Christmas. That's the difference you're making in the nations. In Nepal, we've encouraged pastors. We have 22 missionaries that we support specifically from our church in every continent of this world giving their lives vocationally. And you've supported some of the largest church plants on the globe. You've helped start a church in Maine that is now the largest church in New England. And you helped start a church in Canada that is one of the largest churches in Canada and is starting multiple churches in Canada. And even in the toughest places like Iran and Afghanistan, you are there by being a part of this church. But there's more to be done, isn't there? And now we know that the nations are here. If our church has more than 60 nationalities, then certainly there must be more around us. And there are. We're just a couple of miles away on this campus uh, from the ninth largest university in the country. And did you know that the University of South Florida now has more than 5,000 international students who've come here from outside of this country to study, and they've come from 145 different nations. And I've already told you that the largest mosque in North America is being designed to be built within a couple of miles of our church. When you understand this, I hope you realize that we have to be obedient to the command of Jesus. We have to live for the nations. That's why I'm excited about the fact that when you come alongside us and you participate in this four campaign, 10% of everything that's given is going to help reach the nations, whether that's across the street or around the world. We're prioritizing that because that is so important. So I'd ask you, first you've got to decide, are, are you one of the called Then you've got to decide, do I believe the claim of Jesus? Then I have to decide, am I going to obey his command? And that's where it gets scary on every level. Because there are college students and high school students, there may even be some adults in this room that you know in your heart, you've been called to go, and yet you've hesitated because you were depending on reason, not revelation. And you let your fear take over. This summer represents 30 years that I've been in ministry, full-time devoted to ministry. And I'd have to tell you the most miserable and ornery church people I've ever met are those who were called but didn't respond. They didn't go. But others of you are fearful because you know we're talking about this financial commitment. And either you're strategically going to be out on the Sundays where we talk about this or, or you're going to sit there and your palms are going to get sweaty and you're wondering, should I participate? Or I don't like this or that uh, about the campaign or of what's going on. And, and, and so you're letting these things get control of you because of the discomfort that you feel. And, and that's where I want you to understand the last part of this passage in the life of Jesus. And that is this. There's comfort that we can experience even in this moment. And that's the very last verse because um, Jesus says this at the end of his discussion. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you hear that? That's Jesus I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, these disciples, most of them Jewish, they would understand this because that was an Old Testament principle. God had told the Israelites in the Old Testament, I won't leave you or forsake you. And now we, living in light of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the birth of the church, we know it's a New Testament principle because we have in Hebrews this word of Jesus where he says, I will never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. But imagine the disciples in that moment. The disciples in that moment, they've just heard this audacious claim of Jesus. And now they've been given this bold command of Jesus. And there at that breakfast in Galilee, Jesus had told a couple of them at least, hey, you're going to die if you follow after me. And so I think it had to be comforting when Jesus would say to them, I'm going to be with you in this. Any parent can understand that principle. Today's our little girl's ninth birthday. She asked me if I was going to tell you that, so there you go. (laughs) And also, November is National Adoption Month, and so I would just encourage you. It's not easy But it could change your life and save a child if you consider that as part of your calling. Early this morning when I was putting the finishing touches on this message, she was doing everything she could to stay in her bed. But her inner body was trying to wake her up because it was her birthday. And so I could hear her groaning. And so I put down my notes and my coffee and just listen for a second. Because as a parent, I wanted to know, is she scared? Is she okay? Is she hurting? Because how many times have we, in the middle of the night, gone to a child and just touched their head and begin to rub their hair and say, it's okay, daddy's here, mama's here, I'm with you. See, when, when Jesus said, I'm with you, He was saying, that's all that matters. So go do this. This is not primarily a financial message. But I would tell you in those 30 years, that's the biggest area of disobedience that I see in the lives of professing Christ followers. People that are simply unwilling to trust God in doing what He said to do about being generous with their finances. And it's all because we don't understand or we don't believe this promise that He is with us. So, what's it going to be, church? Are you going to be obedient in this small, small world in going to the nations? Jesus has demonstrated his authority. He's promised his presence. We've got his power. We're without excuse. It's a small, small world. And he's sending you and me. And the long-term story of this church is not going to be written about our buildings and our seating capacity. It's going to be written about our sending capacity. It was in 1950 and 51 and 52 that a builder was building the world's largest and fastest ship. It would be named the SS United States. When our government found out this ship was being built for $80 million, 79.5 in the fifties. Can you that's a lot of money? When our government found out that was being built, they said, we want some of the action. So the government gave this shipbuilder $50 million to be a part of this process with this understanding that the ship would be built to be a troop carrier where it needed for military use or that it would be built so that it could be converted to a hospital where it needed for medical use. The ship was built and it was the largest and it, I think to this day was the fastest. Mr. Dewey, who sat right here in the last service, he came up to me afterwards and he said, I helped build that ship. I was there. It was built and it set sail across the Atlantic, made record time. But it was never used for military. It was never used as a hospital. It was only used as a luxury cruise liner. And today, if you want to see it, you can. It's rusting in a port. Tourists don't even go see it anymore. In a port of Philadelphia. I hear that story and I think about the church in our culture. A church that's been giving clear marching orders. We've been told by our founder, Jesus the Christ, What we are here for. He's even told us as we read the scriptures that it may involve wartime endeavors. And he's even told us that we had better be prepared to come along and help those who are hurting. But unfortunately too often that's not what the church has been. Too often we've been like a cruise ship. Entertaining the paying customers, keeping us happy. And now, after a couple thousand years and most recently a worldwide pandemic, we're seeing how that looks. A lot of people have left church never to come back. More churches closed their door in the last year for good than ever in history. And if we're not careful, we'll be like that big boat. An empty building that decays. That people drive by and go, I bet there's a big story behind that. May it not be so. (laughs) May we be obedient to the command. May we live for the nations, for his glory. And you can do that. I I have faith that you can, not because of how great you are, but because of how good He is. He is with us, church. He is with us, church. The Lord Jesus Christ is with us. So what do you need to do? Some of you, no, all of us, we need to pray. All of us, we need to give. And all of us, we need to go. For some, that'll mean getting on an airplane. For others, it'll just mean coming up to your church campus and reaching the nations from Temple Terrace. After I pray, I'm going to give you a chance to respond physically to this message. At the front of this room, you see these banners, and they represent the four things we've talked about over the last four weeks. First banner over to my right, your left, says, for you. And I've invited you, if God has a person that you're praying for that needs a relationship with Christ, for you to write their name, You're one. The next banner says, for the next gen. And so today I'm going to invite you to write on that panel. And you may write a a, a son or a daughter, a a child or a grandchild, a great-grandchild, a student that you teach, uh, someone in your neighborhood that's coming along in that next gen that you know needs Christ. Over on this side, it says far the city. And I'm gonna invite some of you to come and maybe write your neighborhood, or write the municipality you live, or, or the place where, you, where your home is built. And then you see far the nations. And I'm gonna invite you to come and write down a nation. Some of you that screamed out and clapped as we were going while ago, man, this would be a great time for you to come and write your nations and say, I'm praying for salvation of people in my home nation. But after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come and practically demonstrate that you understand what you're here for. But first, somebody here still needs a relationship with Christ. You're not a disciple. I want you to begin that relationship with Jesus today. Let's bow our heads. If that's you, if you've never begun a relationship with Christ right here, right now, would you consider surrendering your life to Jesus Christ here's what it takes you've got to acknowledge that you need him because you're a sinner you've got to believe what I told you several times in this message that he died on the cross for your sins that he rose from the grave that he's alive today and then you have to submit your life to him you've got to give him control of your life if that's something you're ready to do, I'm not going to belabor it. I want to invite you to pray with me right now. This is not a magic prayer, but if you express these words with your, uh, with your lips right now, this can change your life. Maybe you just pray this. Dear Jesus, just you and him. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I believe you died for me. And I know you're alive today. I receive your forgiveness. I'm ready to follow you. This is my first step of obedience, Jesus. I'm yours. Now tell him thank you. Say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, but across this room... There's no question there's numbers of you that need that relationship with Christ. I want to give you a chance to let me know that you just began that relationship with Christ. If you just began that relationship with Christ, would you do me a favor? I'm not going to draw attention to you or embarrass you. I just want to congratulate you Praise God for you. If you just prayed that prayer with me to begin that relationship with Christ, would you just lift your hand right up wherever you're sitting right now? Just lift your hand high in the air. You can put it right back down. If you did that, that's the most important thing you could ever do. Welcome to God's family. And when I finish my prayer, there are going to be pastors from this church standing at the front of this stage. And I want to invite you to come tell them. Maybe you didn't pray that prayer. You have more questions about what it means to follow Christ. You can come and talk to these men, these men of God, these pastors who want to introduce you to Jesus. So, Father, we've heard your claim. We've heard the command. Lord, and I report to duty as one of the called. I want to be obedient. Oh, God, I want to be obedient. Thank you for the promise, Jesus, that when it doesn't make sense to me, I've got you with me. Lord, I pray that these next few minutes would allow us just to put feet to the message in a practical way. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand together with me?